Good morning, everyone. What I'd like to uh, take a few minutes and share with you is uh, a bit of a journey that the Ohio Historical Society has been on for the last uh, several years. And I myself have been there, uh, it'll be three years in December. So most of this was put together before my arrival. And the real credit for it uh, goes to our Director of Historic Sites and Facilities, George Kane, who uh, put, uh, along with other staff, but particularly George, uh, really led the effort. So to give a quick background on OHS, we've been the state's partner in history for 127 years. And I would point out the fact that we're a 501c3, I think gave us a lot more flexibility in the process that I'm going to describe. Uh, had we been a true state agency, uh, I think it would have um, extended the process uh, a great uh, amount of time, so we did have more flexibility. And while we provide uh, all these five services to the state and the citizens of Ohio, it's the last that we really want to focus on this morning. Uh, we acquired our first historic site, Fort Ancient, uh, right around the turn of the 20th century. And from that time, uh, the number of sites have fluctuated. Uh, currently, we have 58 sites and museums across the state. They range from uh, Native American uh, sites, such as Serpent Mound, um, to another a wonderful Native American site, the Newark Earthworks, uh, which is worthy of a presentation in itself. It's a lunar observatory uh, designed and built to align with the northernmost rising of the moon that happens every 18.6 years. It's a pretty phenomenal uh, structure. Uh, another site, uh, the Rankin House in Ripley, uh, which was a stop on the Underground Railroad. And we go all the way to the Neil Armstrong Museum in Wapakoneta. And our sites um, are spread over a range of different uh, focus. Uh, we predate the Department of Natural Resources, so we actually have four nature preserves uh, as part of our 58 sites. And you can see that we also have museums, archaeological sites, and then uh, traditional history sites. Uh, their significance, uh, four, we hope, will in the next few years be listed on the World Heritage Site list. Um, working our way down through National Historic Landmarks, uh, and nine are accredited by AAM. Uh, the site management agreement concept is not necessarily new to OHS. Uh, some were put in place, as you can see here, uh, over the range of the 20th century. In 1981 to 1984, during a particular recession, uh, there was an effort to move more sites into uh, some type of agreement. And the real focus that we started on in 2008, uh, you can see that by the end of 2007, 25 of the 58 sites were managed by local groups, and we managed 34. So what really um, precipitated this new effort to move into uh, site management agreements was the Great Recession where we saw our general revenue fund, GRF, from the state uh, over uh, the two-year period from FY08 to FY10 uh, decreased by $5.9 million. And I'll also point out that you can see that our earned revenue decreased, um, and I'll come back to that in a moment because that's funds that we ended up transferring to the local sites. So when you have a $5.9 mil uh, hole in the budget, uh, we looked at two things. One was staff reduction, unfortunately, but that was the reality. And the other was 
could a substantial portion of this be uh, recaptured through site management agreements? And in late 2008, the board set the goal that 18 of our staffed sites would be moved into site partnership agreements within 16 months. Uh, we've completed all except one, and we're in the process of negotiating that final one. And at the end, uh, 51 of our 58 sites will be managed by some type of local partnership, and they represent 43 management groups. So some management groups uh, manage uh, more than one site. So the process that uh, we went through, first of all, was to identify possible site partners. And I'll share with you in a moment the range of partners uh, that we're currently working with. Um, we would approach a potential partner, create an agreement, and then have a public meeting. Uh, more than anything else, we wanted to be fully transparent on these arrangements, uh, that there was the opportunity for public input. Some of the meetings would draw one or two attendees some uh, upwards of 100. Uh, and we use that both as an opportunity to gauge local support, but more importantly to explain to the local community the concept uh, behind the site management agreement. And then ultimately it was up to the OHS board for final approval. So OHS remains responsible for the management and the control and the pr protection of the real asset itself be it historic, archaeological, natural history collections. The local group assumes responsibility for the day-to-day -day operations. And we did not identify any favorites that we wanted to hold back. Every site, uh, and I said that there were seven, two that immediately um, we continue to manage. One is the History Center, where our headquarters are located, and then the Ohio Village, which is adjacent to the History Center. Uh, so those are two of the 58. Uh, another is a Native American burial ground that's very close in, uh, what's not interpreted right now. It's only uh, maintenance that we're providing. So those seven that were held out of the 58 uh, are ones that for a variety of reasons just did not fall in to being managed locally. But other than that, uh, we did not uh, hold back any of the other sites. And we really view this as a long-term approach. And I hope that by the conclusion of my presentation, um, you'll begin to see what we perceive and, and believe to be the real value of this. And it's not just a stopgap until the budget is uh, recovered, that we really do see this as our way of doing business, uh, certainly in the years ahead. So we calculated what it would cost to mothball each site. Uh, we continued to you know, pay utilities. We'd have to pay insurance, some type of maintenance. And with that mothballing fee, uh, we provide that to each site management group as an annual stipend. The terms of our agreements range from one to 15 years. So I think you can see from this that we wanted to tailor each agreement uh, to the particular situation. Uh, the agreements spell out in detail the responsibilities of the site management partner as well as OHS. We do have a cancellation clause so really, it's not a 15-year uh, term. It's a 15-year term, but with a cancellation clause. And we continue to provide uh, lots of support in the way of facilities, uh, curatorial development, uh, architectural services for improvements to site. And the state continues to provide capital dollars. 
And I think it's perhaps best illustrated through uh, this diagram that if we were to remove under our current site management plan any side of this triangle, I think the triangle would collapse. And it really is not a true privatization because the state retains ownership of the properties. Uh, OHS owns a few of the properties, but the majority of them are owned by the state. The state continues to provide capital funds for uh, necessary maintenance and upkeep. We provide the type of support that the sites do not have, be it curatorial, uh, architectural services, education, development. And then the site partners themselves take on the daily operations. And it's through this that they've really been able uh, to develop a level of community support and involvement that could not be uh, attained when it was centrally managed from Columbus. So this is the range of our partnerships. Uh, some are friends groups. They may have been a friends group that was working with us before, and then they incorporated to become a 501c3. In some cases, they're a brand-new 501c3 brought about simply through this process. Um, historical societies, museums, colleges, uh, municipal county government, park districts, Convention and Visitors Bureau, and uh, Department of Natural Resources. So again, we wanted to find the correct partner, not our predetermined partner, but who would be best in the community uh, to help administer the site. So the bottom line for the sites uh, is that they receive the annual stipend that we provide, and then we have turned over to each site any earned revenue that they, um, that they can bring forth during the year. Previous to this, all of that earned revenue was returned to Columbus, uh, so it does provide uh, another funding stream. Uh, they're responsible for programming. They can also um, do fundraisers, seek donations, gifts in kind, and a few have a small endowment to uh, support uh, the efforts. The bottom line for the historical society, uh, we were able to shift about 50 employees from our payroll to the payrolls of the local um, site management partners. We did transfer the earned income, as I mentioned a moment ago, so that was a revenue loss. But it has saved a million dollars in general revenue fund uh, for the state of Ohio. And I believe this is where the real value um, in the program comes, in the intangible bottom line. First, we have really tried to let go. And it's a delicate balance to do that. Um, on the one hand, yes, we want to have a certain consistency of programming, consistency of services at different sites because they all are identified with the OHS brand. But yet, if you go to a site partner and say, we want you to take day-to-day -day responsibility, but then we're going to tell you how to manage, that doesn't work too well either. Um, so we're trying to empower the local site partners as much as they're willing to step forward while we still have some measure of coaching, mentoring, uh, maintaining standards. And I'll be uh, quite candid and say that this is something that we're learning as we go. Um, all the sites remained open. We did not uh, have to close a single site, uh, which we're quite proud of. And I think that has another um, benefit that I'll come back to in just a moment. We've also increased services. In almost every case, the site is now open more hours and serving more people than we were able to with the resources that we had 
as the central organization. Uh, local control and engagement, uh, I think Barbara referred to this as civic engagement, uh, I think has been the greatest benefit. Uh, we hear time and again from sites how they really now feel like they have a part of determining the destiny for this local resource. Again, in the past, it was viewed as something managed from Columbus. Now it really is a part of the community, and the community feels empowered to step forward and help do a lot of the things uh, to, uh, to make this happen. It also, I think, is going to assist down the road as budgets continue to uh, become more healthier in the state that Ohio has 132 House and Senate districts. There are 99 House districts and 30 districts. And of those 132, 48 districts have an OHS site. So we now have what I would say are very satisfied site partners in those 48 districts informally spreading the word of how this site management agreement is working. And rather than take the approach that we need more money to the state, give us more money, and then we can open the sites. OHS decided that the best approach was to do what we could with the funds that we had and that if we were able to show that type of service and go to the state with a solution rather than saying we have the problem of not enough money in which they would have said, well, talk to ODT, talk, talk to Department of Transportation, talk to natural resources, talk to the prisons. No one has enough money. Uh, so we really tried to approach this as a problem-solving rather than transferring back to the state, we do not have enough money, give us more money, and we'll operate the sites. Um, it has provided an increased demand for our support, and I think this is the next level we have to work out uh, in this arrangement, that right now we have sites that are looking to OHS for support not really understanding that every other site in the system is looking to OHS for support. So one site may want to open an exhibit in March and another one open an exhibit in April and a third in May, and they're all rightfully so saying, well, my project is the one that really matters. Uh, so we're having um, our first site summit uh, in two weeks where we're bringing the manager, the site manager of each site along with our curatorial education facility staff, and we're convening and starting to develop a process how we can convert this from a spoken wheel concept to a real web where it's OHS sites across the state with an understanding of how all together we are working, uh, and that's probably going to be uh, a year or two years to get that worked out, uh, but we believe if we don't do that, the demands on our limited resources are going to overwhelm us, plus we'll have uh, site partners that are not uh, particularly happy campers. And I think the other uh, thing I would share with you is as we get feedback uh, anecdotally and also as we look at attendance and as we look at open hours, uh, I think it really has been a win-win. Uh, I was talking recently with a site director who previous had been an OHS employee. He now works for a board, a 501c3 board that manages the site. And he said, when OHS managed this site, and I was an OHS employee, we had a friends group. But their heart wasn't in it. You know, they would sort of show up, they would do a few things, um, but we really couldn't get them energized. 
And he said when they made the decision that they were going to become responsible for the day-to-day operation of the site, we lost some of those friends because that's not what they signed up for. But the ones that remained really doubled their effort. They recruited their friends. And he said we're in the best situation that we've been in a number of years. So that's from a, a staff perspective. I've also heard from members of the boards of these different organizations. Uh, One said, if you had told me a year and a half ago how this was going to turn out, I would not have believed it. And he said it really has surpassed any expectation that we had at the local level of how this process and this agreement uh, is falling into place. And just this past Sunday, we had a a dedication at one of our rural sites. When it was managed by OHS, again, we didn't have the resources to really maintain it as it should be. Uh, It was sort of a hangout for derelicts, I guess is probably a a kind way to say it, Uh, not a place that families wanted to go for a picnic. Um, It's now managed by the county park district. Uh, They've taken ownership in in the, um, not the legal sense, but in the emotional sense. Um, They've enlisted the high school and the shop class from the high school came down, built a brand-new uh, structure, re-roofed it for the picnic pavilion. Uh, there must have been 150, 200 people there for the dedication uh, this past weekend. And you could just feel this sense within the community of how they now regarded the site, which for a while had been neglected. It was now part of their community, part of their fabric. Uh, and so because of all those reasons, we really believe that the winner is Ohio history, that it's a much uh, better product that we're able to provide on behalf of Ohio history, that it's helping OHS fulfill its mission better, it's helping the communities have uh, a much better product, and it's saving the state, uh, in our case, a million dollars a year. So you're going to speak now to David's. I'm just going to describe David's. Okay. Okay. That should shut it down so we don't have to look at that. Um, the um, last piece that I want to talk with uh, to uh, describe to you is what uh, David Donath has been working on. And this is the state of Vermont, and it was called Heritage Stewardship Vermont. And it was a year-long um, study and which came up with a report that ended in fall of 2010. And basically the idea was to build a bridge between public and private sectors around the idea of a Vermont stewardship program. Um, And the idea was that they would, um, addressing issues of leadership, a Vermont brand, uh, how to encourage collaboration, how to leverage uh, the state's limited fiscal resources, and how to uh, really uh, 
enhance the educational benefits of some of this. So what they were suggesting was a Vermont creating a Vermont Stewardship Foundation, which would be a board that included uh, the major heritage and cultural organizations, uh, leadership from industries and business, as well as the state uh, entities. And the idea of this would be to advise the governor and state legislature, uh, oversee a fund, and obviously raise uh, additional funding for this. Uh, They were also proposing creating a coordinator of Vermont stewardship to link these public and private sectors, and that this position would be located in the governor's office uh, as an appointee to advance the efforts of the foundation while working with uh, both the agencies and uh, promoting kind of a tourism uh, idea. And then the other idea was, uh, a second part of this was to realign state government as it relates to heritage stewardship and um, to create a commissioner of community stewardship within the Agency of Commerce and Community Affairs. Um, The whole idea was to elevate the issue of uh, tourism and heritage uh, preservation and stewardship to the state level. Uh, So this was put together as a report. Uh, There was a change in administration, and David's update on this was that uh, although the heritage agenda did not result in specific government actions, the uh, particular things did not happen, uh, it did become a catalyst in a broader statement of core values that continue to infuse a broad statewide discussion. Significantly, this Working Landscape Stewardship Initiative resulted in successful legislation in the most recent session. Today, a Working Landscape Coalition is actively trying to build a public-private quasi-state entity that will leverage governmental with non-governmental funding. It echoes many of the elements of the earlier Heritage Stewardship Initiative. At the same time, the Division for Historic Preservation is being lifted out of the doldrums with renewed government commitment, including new positions. So this is kind of the other side of it, which is instead of state agencies looking for private organizations to take this on, this was really about public-private partnership to really leverage and provide more leadership from the state level. So it's sort of coming the other direction. Um, The other example I want to share with you is I just, uh, I don't know, many of you may know Don Zuris from Corpus Christi um, uh, Museum of History. Uh, and they are undergoing right now a privatization as a municipal museum where they are being uh, transferred, uh, the uh, operations are being transferred to a uh, museum um, partnership which a um, amusement park for-profit company that is going to be running their museum. So uh, there are all kinds of examples out there, good and bad, and uh, to see what what is being tried at this point. Um, so I want to now turn it over to you all. Um, first of all, let me see how many of you are from public institutions and how much private institutions? Public? Private? Okay, good. We have a little representation on both sides. Excellent. Um, So, first of all, uh, I guess one of the questions uh, that I have for you are other people that are dealing with this issue. I mean, what are what are the things on in your institutions, or are there examples that you have uh, to share with us? If you don't ask me, or if you have any questions about the presentations, we can start there. Okay. 
You know, they are. Ta- I want to mention that they are taping this, um, and I'm wondering if you would mind. Maybe if you would come up and do your question, we'll be a little bit able. Otherwise, I have to repeat it. <laughs> Uh, I'm Ann Woosley from the Arizona Historical Society, and I'll just give you an example which um, uh, goes in line a little bit with what Ohio is doing. Uh, In Arizona, we're one of the states where state parks, the Department of State Parks, is being eviscerated, and a lot of the historic parks have been closed. And or or have been threatened to be closed, and so we've taken on and created uh, an intergovern- intergovernmental agreement between the Arizona Historical Society and state parks to manage the Reardon Mansion. The Reardon Mansion is one of the founding families uh, of, uh, of Flagstaff. Uh, it is a historic house, uh, arts and crafts house, and uh, very much a uh, very much uh, a part of the local community and very important uh, to the sense of history of Flagstaff. And um, uh, I have to say also there were a lot of uh, little road bumps uh, because, uh, of course, the park staff who had been operating that particular site for such a long time were very invested in it and to have to give it over so to speak to another agency uh, uh, gave them gave them a lot of heartburn and so we have tried very hard to uh, create a positive kind of um, um, attitude I guess and philosophy that we're all in this together and partnering uh, but uh, I think that what has happened w- with this particular uh, uh, relationship or collaboration is that the community has gotten so involved because they have seen the two agencies coming together. A friends group has formed, and now I would I would think that we also have a triangle where we've got state parks, we've got the Arizona Historical Society, but we also have the local community all involved in keeping it going, keeping it running. Visitation is is much increased, and that is a success story. We we have we're kind of a strange creature. We've got one foot in state agency. We're viewed as a state agency, but we are also we're we're a trustee agency of uh, Arizona. And what that really means is that in terms of personnel and procurement and all of the bureaucratic policy, we are an agency, but a large part of our budget is private because we're also a 501c3. So it, it does create a complicated kind of structure. The other, the other example, though, that we're beginning to develop, uh, which is one that I hope is going to, in the end, benefit us, is that we're also having a very difficult time, of course, with budget uh, reductions. And we have one of our divisions in the far west part of the state in Yuma. And there we have 
a uh, uh, historic houses and uh, uh, a, a fairly a fairly large physical facility that we're responsible for, but very little money. And so we are beginning to talk with the city of Yuma to try to create uh, a city state relationship so that we uh, are we're able to reduce our operating costs not because we're putting less of our money in it but they are beginning to put some of their city money into operating managing our property so we, you know, this this is difficult because we're trying to maintain the standards and the educational programming, and uh, the city, of course, uh, is, you know, it's this negotiation of control. The city wants to be able to be a decision maker if they're putting X dollars into it, and so these these things take a little time to work out, and uh, and so. Bert, I'd like to talk to you some more about making that smooth, <laughs> but uh, but we are uh, but we are working very strongly toward that. And the only other piece, and then I'll be quiet. The only the only other part of Yuma that I would like to share with you is that uh, we have extraordinary collections under our stewardship uh, that describe the history of the Colorado River and northern Mexico settlement in what was the great what what was at one time Mexico then <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> then Arizona territory uh, some of the collections are very very early photographic ambrotypes daguerreotypes that describe uh, that describe uh, settlement uh, in that in that area of the Southwest, um, uh, and and the photographic record is is as I say very early, so we've been uh, we've been feeling extraordinarily guilty about the condition of the facility where these uh, archives and historical uh, photographic collections live, and the uh, and one of uh, you know the saving graces is the climate in the desert so that uh, these things have not deteriorated more than they have. And we have now created a uh, relationship with the county library district, who luckily for them and for us, uh, before the economy tanked, uh, were able to create a uh, a library district through bonding. So they have this phenomenal, wonderful, state-of-the-art new library facility that, you know, could be in any city in the country. It is, it is such a beautiful, uh, it's such a beautiful facility. And we are going to uh, put the resources in to process uh, adequately and to do whatever comfort conservation is necessary for our collections and then we're going to transfer them back to the library and uh, they are going to create a, uh, a special historic archival resource with our branding 
uh, but within this within this facility. And so the collection goes back to the community of origin, which I think is really important. So we're trying to to create these collaborations. Um, I think it's interesting. You a couple of um, points that you bring up, which I think I'd love to hear from some other people, and, and Bert, you as well. One of them is uh, collections, and what is the long-term stewardship role? Is there a long-term stewardship role for government ownership of these uh, resources? Um, and then the second is that whole issue of control, and, and one of the questions that certainly we were dealing with in Pennsylvania, which is what are the standards? I mean, at one point in Pennsylvania, we were looking at individual AAM accreditation for every single one of our sites, uh, including so that every site had curatorial staff, educational staff. Well, to say the least, that's long in the past as even a dream. Uh, but one of the things looking at is, I think for our look in, in this process of privatization is long-term care and collections of collections and how do we maintain these kind of professional standards uh, that we have all been trained and <laughs> worked hard to get to, and are we now seeing an erosion? And I think that really speaks, Bert, to your triangle, because when you look at that state, the state agency and the um, um, the community, what are those roles and expectations, and uh, really beginning to s sort of sort out what is a workable model for that. I don't, you want to speak to that? Yeah, I, I don't uh, think I mentioned um, in almost every site, the collections are owned by OHS. Uh, and so we still have that stewardship responsibility. And uh, Jason Craybill, our uh, collection staff, is here, and he can attest to uh, the challenges of working with uh, sites around the state. Again, each rightfully at this point thinking about their own project, how do we get them to think holistically about the entire organization? Uh, but we're certainly committed to um, to collection stewardship. And to the question about accreditation, uh, we were reaccredited in uh, early 2010. And prior to that reaccreditation, the center itself, which has the museum, the state museum and the Ohio Village adjacent, uh, those had both been accredited. And one of our other sites, the Hayes Presidential Center, had been accredited. But in 2010, we took six additional sites through accreditation. And we're using that now as an opportunity when it comes up again in 10 to 12 years. Uh, we want to have another 6, 8, 10, whatever the number is, of sites that we have continued to build uh, their professional standards. And I guess we approached it um, that if we... And, and I'm not in any way trying to diminish the importance of standards, but if we waited until we got this, everyone up to standard and then did the site management agreement, we would have had to close sites. We've lost momentum. Um, so our approach, I think, was to keep the momentum building and then go back and work on standards rather than make the standards uh, come first and then look at the site management agreement. So it's certainly something that we're very much committed to and over the next decade, want to bring a number of our sites uh, into the accreditation. Um, anybody out there dealing with some of those, any of those issues? How many of you actually are in 
the process of a public-private shift in your institutions? I'm Kent Whitworth at the Kentucky Historical Society, and the, the collections dimension uh, got me to thinking about a couple of things. Um, when we finally went back and took a look at our statute, 171.311, it very clearly says that the primary responsibility for the Kentucky Historical Society is to care, in essence, for the historic treasures of the Commonwealth. And um, you look at our behavior uh, and in many respects, it was wonderful. They built a $30 million history center in the late 90s, and they were aggressively working on a permanent exhibition and then to drive repeat traffic, focused on uh, uh, changing exhibitions. And um, <clears throat> then you start to look at statute, and you think that um, we were doing a lot of temporary exhibitions and borrowing artifacts because we didn't have the physical and intellectual control of our own collections really to do what we needed to do. And so that was the wake of call in a strategic planning process. Um, and so we sort of um, turned the ship around very gradually and really focused on collections, and our behavior has been very different. Um, all the while in the strategic planning process, um, we were looking at a tall tree program that had done us a great deal of good uh, from the standpoint of, of outreach across the state, and that was the Kentucky Folklife Program, a 20-year partnership between KHS and the Arts Council. Um, and yet, as we really zeroed in in the budget climate that everybody has referenced, um, we saw that as somewhat of an outlier. Wonderful tall tree program for the Commonwealth, really not heart and soul of what the Historical Society was able to do at this time. And so rather than kick it to the curb, uh, we pursued a public-public partnership. Um, we reached out to Western Kentucky University, uh, which fortunately has a, a nationally recognized folk studies graduate program, has for about 35 years, and uh, began conversations with them and uh, in the, the end of this previous fiscal year signed an agreement where the state folk life program transferred to WKU collections. There were uh, 25 years worth of field notes, oral histories, artifacts that had been stored in our uh our, uh, in essence, our founding folk uh, life director's office and all up here, but was not accessible to any researchers or any other audience that might be interested in that. So we were able to get an NHPRC grant, and um, we are processing that collection and getting the kind of control that we need um, and before we hand that collection over by the end of the calendar year. And a lot of folks are saying, gosh, you don't even have good a handle on the material you are going to keep, why would you do that? And I guess we just sort of took it for the team because we felt like this was such a significant program for the state, and we also wanted to model the behavior that we want other organizations to uh, to uh, to demonstrate. So um, anyway, it's been an interesting process. And uh, uh, Bert, we didn't save a million dollars, but we're going to save about $210,000 in general fund appropriation for that shift. Um, but uh, um, it, it did not come quickly, um, but we did over-communicate along the way, I think, and, and we were able to avoid some firestorms. We've got a signed agreement, so I don't have to necessarily knock on wood. I don't think it's going to blow up on us now. But it was a, a really effective public-public partnership. But quite frankly, there was a very obvious partner within the Commonwealth, which made it more manageable. But that opportunity had been there for a long time, and we never pursued it. So. 
Uh, I think you raise another interesting point, which is to what extent, um, as, as we're looking at this shift and, and responsibilities, sort of what is the long-term government responsibility? And if it's not operating, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that government is getting out of the sort of frontline management of some of these sites just because of the costs and, and, and the benefit, really, of the community engagement. I think there's, that shouldn't be understated. Uh, but I want to go back to David's example, which is what's, what, how can we get government to, uh, or this idea of ad- actually advocating, working with private partners to advocate for government leadership rather than just thinking about it as the financial. So is there a role for government that, it, whether you're public or private, we should be, as a field, looking to see? And what are those kinds of sort of a new role for government, not just managing the sites, but uh, really providing that sort of overall umbrella and leadership? And um, I don't know, anybody have any thoughts on that from a state? Hi, I'm Karen Oberg with Oberg Research out of New York. And my question is, is to what end would you want more government um, leadership or, or oversight? Um, well, the kind of – well, if you use David's example, it's looking at a statewide problem. So we're talking about collections. Uh, you're talking about support where you're working with uh, the nonprofits that are – now taking over your sites, but how many more historical societies are there, and how are we sort of looking at some of these issues more broadly? And, you know, I, I think that a lot of I, my own experience from Pennsylvania was everyone feeling so beleaguered to try to keep the doors of our own museum, our own institution open, that in some ways we've dropped the ball in terms of thinking about how do we coordinate, how do we work more broadly with all these other partners, not just the ones that are picking up our slack, but what's out there and how to actually empower and engage more institutions. And so if we are really talking about public-private partnerships, again, not just thinking about how can you get somebody with no money to take over your <laughs> your site, uh, but how do you actually think about a new kind, new models of getting together? And if we really are going to talk about public and private, not only what's the private side, but what's the public responsibility. And I think that conversation has kind of gotten lost in the shuffle of the economic shifts. So that's why I bring that up. Uh, David, not to put you at the, on, the, uh, <laughs> on the hot seat here, but do you want to talk about some of the, the funding in, in Minnesota? I, th- I would assume that's created some new partnership. I'm David Kelleher uh, with the Minnesota Historical Society. Um, I guess we have the best of times and the worst of times happening at at the same time. And um, some of you may know that we have had the great fortune of having uh, what we call the Legacy Amendment pass in 2008. Um, And I know you're probably jealous. But um, that has just been amazing. We have... 
had um, literally millions of dollars flow into history in our state. And the way we've uh, worked that is to have some of the money go into programs that we, the Minnesota Historical Society, operate and a significant grant program. Um, So I guess going back to your question, what's the role of government? I guess it's been as funder, our role as a historical organization, and like many others, we're a quasi-state agency, whatever that means. We're a 501c3. We don't have some of the personnel things that you were talking about, and so we have the best of um, both worlds in that regard. But our role has been as a facilitator, and we're actually in the process right now of working on a a longer-term study after about three and a half years of legacy amendment funding we're doing interviews to um, get some help uh, from from outside consultants to um, get us out into the field to talk to partners to see where this is all going and to set a vision for the next 20 years that, that this will be around. Um, the best of times and the worst of times means that at the same time, we've had budget cuts within the same time frame as the legacy amendment, and that's created some, some really bizarre situations. Um, there's language in the constitutional amendment um, that that says something like, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, um, the funds from this amendment shall supplement and not be a substitute for traditional sources of funding. And, and that has not been tested in court. It's been picked apart and analyzed and dissected, but I don't think anyone has come up with a firm conclusion of what it really means. The intent was... This was an outdoors amendment, so there's a clean water section, a parks and trails section, and an outdoor habitat section, and then about 20% is arts and cultural heritage and history. The original intent was so that um, money going into, say, Department of Natural Resources state parks wasn't put in from legacy amendment dollars and then just taken away on the back end for kind of the same purpose. It, it, It was meant to be supplemental. But this thing passed in 2008, right, right at the right moment before the economy took a nosedive. And uh, the next session in 2009, we had budget cuts. And then in 2011, we, we had budget cuts to our regular operating budget. So that's something that we struggle with almost every day. Uh, what does supplement substitute mean? And what can we do with our quote-unquote regular funds as compared to legacy funds. So on the kind of the bigger picture of what's what's our role, um, it has been as facilitator. And what we did right after the amendment passed, um, we figured, and I'm the guy who goes up to the Capitol, so I'm trying to avoid the, the food fights at the Capitol because the legislature doesn't, they like solutions, not problems. So what we did was we got... Um, our partners in the history sector together because the other big part is the arts and they have a very well-established uh, lobbying uh, machine and they we didn't want to have them just eat up all the money. So we figured we would be better off um, as a history community being unified, agreeing on what we wanted and focus our energies on describing what we wanted rather than a, a fight. So we had a very ad hoc, very loose-knit organization, if you would even call it that, called the Minnesota History Coalition with historic preservation groups, county and local historical organizations, archaeologists, 
consortia of uh, history groups and regions, and we got some agreement and agreed on the basic framework for um, what this was going to look like and how it would proceed. And that's held up over four years, and hopefully it'll stick together, will stick together, and it'll, it'll, it'll evolve over time, but we're better off working together than apart. So that's kind of our experience in a nutshell. Thanks. Um, any other examples, questions? Hi, I'm Tom Costello. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. I, um, <clears throat> I'm actually a consultant, although been in the shoes of several in, of leadership in several institutions over the years. We've just worked. Uh, our group, Consultural Re Cultural Resources Management Group, has just completed a contract with the City of Baltimore. Uh, the request was to develop a sustainable economic model for the Edgar Allan Poe House and Museum. Um, in Baltimore. Those of you who know all the many places of Poe up and down the eastern seacoast um, <clears throat> know that every one of them is different um, in odd sorts of way. The one city that's really embraced Poe as a part of its identity is Baltimore. Not only does it have Poe House, which is a National Historic Landmark, but it has the grave, and I've always said it's nine-tenths of the law is the possession of the body. The, um, even to the point of the Baltimore Ravens being named because of the Ravens. <clears throat> now, getting them involved is another matter. Uh, as, as the businesses have said, it's core, they're really close to their core in terms of what they do. Um, we have developed a model and presented it. I think the next phase is beginning today with the approval yesterday of a Board of Estimates uh, commitment. Um, what we said is that the house itself is small. The house itself has a host of problems with it, not physical, the general maintenance and care. It's literally built into a public housing project from the 1930s, the Poe Homes. One wall is shared, all the heating is shared, so it's, it's, you're not going to do something with it. As a house itself, it's not, you know, spectacular architecture. It's an interesting house from the 1830s, 1840s. There's an, almost no collection. Poe didn't collect things. He traveled from place to place. There are about five items that are available that can be considered really Poe items that are controlled. But they they were in different places all over the city. And, and while they resided in Poe House, they were in parts of different collections. So what we, we had to do some rundown of that. But what we said is you can't, if, if you're, the, the city of Baltimore wanted to, can't support it anymore at $85,000 a year for staffing and security and things like that. And um, so we, we develop and won't provide a contribution in. They are the owners. Um, but they also have a fund of over $300,000 that has been accumulated. Why, I don't know. From where, we don't have any records. Um, and what we said is, in essence, the house can't support itself. The house just isn't. But Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, is an idea that's far greater than this one house. Edgar Allan Poe, for each of you, may think about something different about him, from horror 
to mystery, the development of the modern murder mystery, to poetry, literature, whatever you think. But that's Poe. And Poe then presents as an idea a far more powerful way of building a relationship. <clears throat> Initially, when we, with, that can benefit the Poe house. And um, initially, when we were doing our interviews, everybody thought it was, it knew that the Poe House had to be saved. Nobody wanted to get involved, public, private agencies. We, when we came up with the idea, which we call Poe Baltimore, to promote all things Poe in Baltimore, it suddenly breaks down the walls of Poe House and looks at the complete city of Baltimore as a platform on which we can do things. Um, and immediately people started coming in, the institutional members in particular. So we now have about six board members, way beyond what our scope of contract was. Um, we're in a phase where, but we also needed something where moving, got out of the city of Baltimore. So we created, we identified a transition partner, which is the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Museum. It's five blocks from Poe House. <clears throat> and it is provide, it is or transition so that we can get from having really an idea to doing um, the board and governance, the fundraising, the programming, planning, and execution, <clears throat> and the, the full range of needs to create this new Poe Baltimore and a revitalized Poe House experience. I won't go into details of the program. They're pretty unique. Um, it, it involves tours that aren't don't require people sitting at the Poe House waiting for somebody to come because most people probably wouldn't want to come alone. But buying tickets at Poe ha at the B&O Museum, having a scheduled tour, shuttle, bus, going to Poe House, then swinging by the Poe Grave, then coming back to the B&O Museum, which happens to be the railroad station, <clears throat> the site of the railroad station that Poe used coming in and out of Baltimore. This was before Camden Yards and before the President Street Station in the 1840s. So there's this wonderful connection of all these pieces, and, we, and we, we didn't feel we could go and say, well, let's build a visitor center. Well, New York City built a visitor center, and it's still not open. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, that's not the way. We had to have something that we could in, implement immediately, and, and had to, that meant had to be programming. There will be, as redevelopment occurs, which we think over 10 years will happen, there can be the introduction of the visitor center, Maybe, and then other relationships, a writer's center perhaps, or other kinds of things like that. Within two blocks, within a baseball's throw, is the, is the University of Baltimore Biotechnology Park, Biopark as it's called. Within one block is the county coroner's office, which I, have, I drool about as the possibilities of association with Poe. Um, so there are all these ideas of connecting that really make this happen. Longer, farther down the road, about seven blocks away, is the H.L. Mencken House, which is a, another can of worms, bees, and anything. But so in this area, in this neighborhood that nobody, you know, this, it's the site of the wire, okay? Just it's the site of the wire, if you haven't seen it. Um, there are all these opportunities, but we've got to stage them so that we might work them out. So hopefully a year from now we can come back and say, this is where... It, we can come back and say this is what's happened. Hopefully it's everything we think. And I'm glad to answer any questions afterwards because I know we're at the end. Great. Uh, well, thank you. I think we're just about out of time. Thank you all for your participation in this. And I, yes. 
Oh, yes. There are evaluation forms. Don't forget to fill them out. Um, I want to leave you with one sort of question long-term, and maybe next year we'll be discussing this again. Um, and continuing this discussion uh, is really looking at both the positive, negatives. Um, there's obviously pluses and minuses to all of this. Um, is really to say, is these are these short-term solutions, or are we really looking at a long-term shift in our field? And even if there was funding coming back, are there things that we're learning in this uh, that really are things that we need to keep and move forward with? So uh, I, I think not thinking of this as something that's imposed on us, but how do we actually think about privatization as something that we're incorporating into our thinking and finding creative ways to use it in, in new ways. So thank you all.